Welcome to Running Off the Rails. My name is Ariel Rasco. And I'm Raymond O'Connor. This episode, we're going to be talking about deities and the pantheon for your game of Dungeons and Dragons. When you start a game of Dungeons and Dragons, you might not be thinking too much about what your deities are and what they're doing. You certainly don't need it to introduce your players to a small village. But it is a hard topic to avoid, considering you have classes like clerics and paladins that are explicitly tied to deities. And even sometimes druids can interact with the deities through their connection to nature. So we think it's an important conversation to have with your players, and an important thing to think about as a DM designing your world. We don't have all the right answers. I'm sure there are many different people that have great solutions to some of these problems, and great answers to some of these questions. But we'd like to just talk about how we think through this process, and how we start building and creating pantheons that fit our players and what they want to have in a game of Dungeons & Dragons. So Ray, what is one of the first things you think about when you're starting a game and you're considering what kind of pantheon you want to have with your players? Yeah, it's a, it's a really hard question, and it's one that I've been struggling with as I have been building out my own homebrew world. Just like you said, when you're starting Dungeons & Dragons, you do not need to have a sophisticated homebrew and custom pantheon figured out to play that first session of Dungeons & Dragons. The player's handbook gives your players many, many different gods to choose from, from many different pantheons. And in doing so, kind of gives your players permission to choose from that list, which means that the default Dungeons & Dragons setting has an expansive pantheon that may actually include gods from many different cultures and religions. One player might decide that they want to be a paladin of Zeus, and another player might decide that they want to be a cleric of Bahamut. And if you're just trying to get that first session off the ground, that's something that you should probably lean into and allow. It's not what you're worried about. But the more and more you try to craft a more and more nuanced campaign and campaign setting, the more you start to look at that very expansive list of gods and start to look at it with a very critical eye it starts to get a little weird that maybe you have three different gods of thunder and lightning all of a sudden. I think it comes down to what type of story are you trying to tell and does that story revolve around the gods? When we look at stories like Critical Role, those stories often do revolve around either creation myth or the gods or the role that gods have played directly on the earth. And we, when we look at other stories, sometimes they play less of a role or there's maybe only one god who takes center focus. So yeah, I think it's really useful to kind of look at these complex pantheons and maybe pick at the specific qualities that maybe those writers and creators made along the way that resulted in the pantheon that we see in all of these different popular cultures and movies and books. Yeah, I think one of the questions that you're getting at here that is very difficult just for that first session is when your players come to you with all these ideas for characters, do you say yes to everything? And I think your advice was a little bit to start off, maybe let's say yes and let that drive things forward. But maybe if you're a more experienced DM or if you're building out a longer homebrew session, you might have reasons to say no. And this comes up with our question of when do you let your players tell you what the Pantheon is like? And when do you tell the players what the Pantheon is like? So I think the answer to that question is very, very nuanced. And I only very occasionally 
tell a player, I don't think this will fit. Can we try something else? Much more often, if I really want to be more focused on the DM's experience of the Pantheon, I will go to my players and show them the Pantheon that I'm considering. And that way I initiate the conversation. So if I show them all the different nuances of the Pantheon for my homebrew game, they get to pick and they get to find a god that's really exciting for them. And if they don't find something perfect, I, I tweak my own Pantheon maybe to fit with what they want. But often they do find some kind of inspiration from the page that I give them. So I think if you do want to be really focused on your own story, make a handout. Figure out what the Pantheon is like for you. But for most campaigns, I think it's very fun to let your players do that work. It gets them invested in the setting. If you're having a plot that your player brings to the table, they're going to be excited about coming to Dungeons & Dragons every week. So that's a bit more of a player-focused perspective where they tell you what their deity wants and you work with them to make that possible. And so I also really love that approach. I think they both have lots of different scenarios where they make a lot of sense. I think my general advice would be basically to agree with what Ariel said, but more specifically, if the pantheon of the gods is going to really matter to my storyline, then perhaps I'll be more inclined to say no. If the plot of my story doesn't have anything to do with the pantheon, I will never say no to a player just because I'm trying to like keep the sanctity of my world intact. I'll never say, no, you can't worship Zeus because Zeus isn't the god of lightning in my world. Uh, Thor is the god of lightning in my world. If Thor or Zeus are not going to make an appearance in my game. Right. And I think this often isn't so much of a problem, like we said, because players are using the published material. And so if your players are just using the published material, maybe you kind of skip that question because there's already a little bit of a contract. And you go right on to the next step, I think, in planning out a pantheon, which is no matter which gods you're using, no matter what your pantheon looks like, how involved are those deities going to be in the day-to-day -day sessions of your campaign? Are the deities going to speak to your players? Are the deities going to listen to their prayers? Are they going to take actions in the world and make changes in your player's world? A lot of that depends on the level, because there are spells like Commune. But I think that can happen for any level of D&D. I've had level 1 D&D where the players pray and their prayers have a chance of being answered. And I think that can be really fun. What do you think about, Ray, when you're deciding whether or not your gods get involved in the action of your story? I think that I do a poor job of role-playing gods. It's one of my shortcomings is... My gods feel very human, I think, because I'm a human and I have a hard time role-playing alien entities. And I want my gods to feel alien. I want them to feel very, very much not human, almost like humanity are ants and the god is the human. Like, how could, how could they possibly keep track of a single ant on the ground? I think I opt to not have my gods take a specific role in the world. And I'll usually come up with a reason why that is the case, why the gods aren't here among us. That will either be because the gods were never among us on Earth, or there was this cataclysmic event or this like post up this apocalyptic event that caused the gods to leave. And I think that can be really convenient for a DM to not have to roleplay a god such that they don't humanize their gods accidentally. Right. I think having alien gods is something I always strive for. 
for some gods, I also mix in some more human-like gods. Because I, I try to have a very active pantheon. But it's also really convenient to do what Ray's talking about for another reason. And the other reason is, why aren't the gods fixing the problems? If a, you're a cleric, uh, and you are a champion of Bahamut, and Bahamut wants something from you, why doesn't Bahamut just do it himself? That question is easily answered if your gods are, you know, these looking down at an anthill, don't have a lot of sway over the world, they don't currently interact with the world on a, you know, moment-by-moment -moment basis. The few times that I have run deities that are extremely active, you can think of this maybe as a warlock patron. Often, warlock patrons are creatures in the material plane, and they get to do things. It's not always the case, but I think it's a little bit more common if you know you're wondering what am I talking about. Maybe this warlock dynamic will help a little bit. Why doesn't the warlock patron go out and kill the monster or kill the king of some place that he wants you to get rid of? Those questions are a lot easier to answer when your pantheon doesn't include gods that act in the real world, when they're much more separate. The caveat is that it's, I think, a loss if your gods don't interact with the world. If you are a cleric and you can pray to your god and your god can give you a vision or that god can do something and send you a planar entity or that god can empower you to make an impassioned speech, those are exciting moments. That's what all those spells are there for. And if you can include more of that in your game, it becomes a really fun and weird and fantasy setting that you get to be a part of. Yeah, and I, I've had gods show up every once in a while and... When I do, they're always, it's always interesting the way that players interact because it's like, whoa, this is important. This is big. So it is a tool that I do reach for every once in a while because it players seem to enjoy it and like it. And it's usually a big hit. But I do think every time I have them appear, it raises questions like, why aren't they appearing for other people? Uh, does this god appear for every cleric of this order? Like, I'm only level five. Does that mean that every level five cleric is having conversations with this god on a daily basis? What are they telling those other clerics? And that can be kind of difficult. A good compromise that I've seen done before is... To have direct communication with a god be very difficult or impossible, but for different players to pray to or worship a specific saint or a variety of saints, because saints were humans, but then they became either angels or they like ascended or maybe their memory remains and can be communicated with. And I think that it makes sense that those remnants of humans feel human. It gives you this deferred authority that you can use where the player says, oh, this god told me that I needed to do this thing. Uh, not really. It was this angel or this saint that told you you needed to do this thing. And that saint actually has their own agenda. So maybe you were manipulated by this saint or something like that. It gives you a lot more ability to... I think improvise, which is literally the point of Dungeons and Dragons, to be able to improvise without locking yourself into specific plot holes. Yeah, I really like this idea of uh, entities that represent the deity because at the end of the day, that is what you are as a cleric too. So it kind of creates this interesting dynamic where when you get to a certain level as a cleric or a paladin, you get to do these things that these representations of the deity was doing to you before. It becomes this 
kind of plot arc where you get to develop as a character where a representative of a deity came and spoke to you. Maybe it was a very high-level cleric that ascended and became a saint, and it, it spoke to you and gave instruction. And then later on in the campaign, if you're giving out instruction, if you're passing on the message of your deity, you get to fill that role that you got to see the DM play out before. I think that's a very cool experience. Yeah, it gives you something to work for. Absolutely. And I think that these ways of putting the deities into your game only make it better. And that's one of the things that we talk about when we're thinking of the deity doesn't need to be there to run a lot of great sessions of Dungeons & Dragons. But it's another tool that you can use to really improve the experience, to really get buy-in from your players. So one of the tools I like to use is I think a nice middle ground between you know, direct influence of a game and indirect influence of the game is visions. I think they can be surprising and they can be a lot of fun. So if a player goes on a long rest, I might give them a vision from their deity and they might have no idea how to interpret it. One of the tools I've used to give these visions is through a game called Mysterium. And it's a board game that's a lot of fun. Part of the board game is interpreting these very abstract pieces of art. It might be a piece of art with flowing water and then a bunch of bears flying in the air and a crown on the ground somewhere. And you get this vision, it means nothing. It's this like representative abstract art. And suddenly you see this picture in front of you in Dungeons and Dragons and your mind goes spinning a hundred miles a minute. What does the bears mean? What does the water mean? What does the crown mean? And so I, I just use these cards straight up from Mysterium and give them out to my players after a long rest sometimes. And I have an idea of what they mean to me as a vision. And then I get to see what my player thinks they mean to them. So I really like that as a tool to interact with the players, but not insert my deities too much into the story. I think it's a great idea to give your players metaphors and similes or like act out specific things that are happening that try to communicate some sort of message from your god instead of just giving them, I am tear and I command you to go kill this devil over there because it's bad and you're good. I think it's better to maybe give a more abstract picture of things happening. So an example of this happening in my home game now that I'm thinking about it is Jeffrey, uh, who is played by JJ, who was on our show in one of our previous episodes. He was caught in between two deities. He had a connection to Orcus through his blood tattoos that he got from drinking from a pool of orc blood. And then there was another force, which was the kind of this like nature force that he did not worship explicitly before the campaign started, but he is a totem barbarian. So he has this innate connection with nature. And as he was becoming more and more bloodthirsty and killing more and more people and kind of like diving into this idea of this blood curse, very orcs from World of Warcraft, he was getting these visions of him slaying enemy after enemy after enemy in glorious gladiatorial battle. And then he would kind of like wake up from this blood frenzy and he would look around him and people that he knew were dead. This is something that we've seen in so many different pop culture references. It's a very visceral scene, this idea that you are such an agent of death or a god of death and you revel in it so much that you end up hurting the people around you. So this was a, a vision that like I didn't want JJ to do anything deliberate. I just wanted to communicate to him that the path that he was going down was 
evil-ish. It's like, and if that's cool, if that's something you're about, if you want power and you don't care if you hurt those around you, one way to to interpret that vision is, in the future, I will have this amazing bloodlust-fueled power, and I'll be capable of killing the people around me who are also very powerful. That sounds amazing. And then the other direction you can take it, which is the way that he happened to interpret it, was oh, if I don't get a handle on this blood curse, I am going to hurt those most dear to me, and I should get this in check or get this curse removed. Right, and then you can take that one step further, and you can ask the question, how did he get this vision? Who gave him the vision? And you don't need to. It can just be one of the things that happens in the game right away and never gets expounded on too much. I think that's fine. It's a magical world. Weird things happen. But sometimes you go on a little further and you think, okay, well, somebody sent me this vision. What do I do about that? Do they have a purpose for me? Do they not want me killing all these people? And then you get to ask yourself the question, what do the gods actually want from me? And I think that's the next question I like to ask when I'm talking about my pantheon. What do the gods care about? Do they care about good and evil? Do they care about law versus chaos? Do they care about nature versus maybe machines and technology, kind of a Princess Mononoke vibe? And I think the answers to those questions doesn't have to be perfectly aligned, you know, good versus evil. It can be more nuanced. But I kind of like when it's just like very obvious. It's, you know, chaos, law, period. That's all the gods care about. And then you get to maybe have a situation where it turns out the god that was sending JJ the vision actually was just frustrated because he was causing so much chaos, not because he was turning evil. And then you get to have a conversation a little bit later where you try to figure out what do the gods want? They have a mission for you. It turns out that mission wasn't about being good. It was about establishing justice. And you get to have these dynamics that make your deities a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more textured. And you get to ask the question of what are they going to do in the future? Like, okay, this time it fit really well to give this vision about death and destruction, but what's the next vision I'm going to give like? And how do I make that a cohesive story where the gods are caring about the same things throughout the process? Then your players get to have knowledge about the pantheon that they develop throughout the gameplay. I think that choosing a duality like this is a great example of a closed pantheon. So when we first opened this up, this idea of if you want your story to be about life versus death or law versus chaos, it can be very jarring for a player to show up to the table and want to worship a god of death in a game that is about law versus chaos. Perhaps the god of law is also the god of death, and that's just the way they worship the god of law because law is order and death is final, whereas life is chaotic. And I, I would encourage DMs who have this kind of like duality in mind for their world to lean into allowing their players to worship one of the two gods in like a different flavor than, than um, maybe you had in mind. Or maybe there's like a saint of death who worships the god um, of law. 
and then maybe the player has a relationship with that saint of death and then they roll up to the god of law or the god of order. I think that if you are going to have a story that revolves around the gods reigning in your pantheon and being a little bit more deliberate about which gods exist and perhaps maybe having like a more curated list can be very, very useful. Right. This works really well for high-level D&D. So if you think about it earlier on in a campaign, or if you're starting a campaign that is high-level, this idea of being more deliberate and focused, it's just a tool to make your story more cohesive. And I really like this idea of a more closed pantheon when you want to tell a really cohesive story. You get to really focus on the details that are important to you. You get to create an arc that your player gets to really sink their teeth into. It's very easy as a player to understand where the story is going and how their character fits in when there's a titanic battle of chaos versus law going on and they get to pick a side and they get to participate in these struggles. If they have cohesion with all these battles and all the through lines of your deities throughout the story of your campaign, if that stays very cohesive, your players get to follow the track very easily and they're going to buy in. They won't be confused. What should we do next? Where do we go? I don't know what this story's about. It, it feels instead of a collection of small modules, it feels like a real campaign with a beautiful arc. I think sometimes we hear about these amazing years-long campaigns that have this incredible satisfying end. You certainly don't need to work for two years to get that really satisfying, cohesive story that builds to a climax that is very natural and everyone can buy in very quickly. I think having a really long campaign helps drive that, but if you're doing a shorter campaign, just being cohesive, being deliberate, and having a little bit more closed parameters to your story can make that experience really, really feel like a, a film or a movie or a adventure that you went, actually went on. Absolutely. And I think that's probably a pretty good place to wrap up this conversation about deities. I think that the more deliberate you want to be about your pantheon, the more cohesive your story is going to feel, but it will require more collaboration with your players, particularly the players who are religious or play religious characters, to get on the same page, to work with them to figure out how the things that they have in mind for their character and their character arc can fit into your world. And you don't want to say no, because this is a, this is a collaborative experience, but you are putting limits on what is possible. You're not saying, yeah, of course you can worship Korg, the, do the god of puppies, you know? <laughs> You're having to meet in the middle if that's the case. And that's not that's no different from any other campaign. An example that comes to mind right away is if I'm running out of the abyss and this is the campaign that my players have signed up for, and one of the players shows up to that first session and says, cool, my character is a pirate captain and I'm gonna choose Swashbuckler at level three and I wanna have a pirate ship and be sailing as a pirate captain by level five, that's just not gonna work out because that doesn't fit into that campaign. So. We're already doing this in other dimensions of Dungeons & Dragons where we are collaborating. I just think that this particular subject is usually so greenfield 
that it does require maybe a little bit more care because cultural norms don't usually specify that like this is something that you would actually have to get straight with your players before that first session. Right. It's easy to overlook. And it makes sense that it's a little bit easier to overlook than some other aspects of your campaign. But we hope that with these tools, you can think about how you want your campaign to look, how you want your sessions to look, and be a little bit more deliberate. Because I think in all parts of Dungeons & Dragons, we can use these deliberate choices to make a better game. And when things are flying off the rails and you're going by the seat of your pants, improving everything, it can be super, super fun. But in the long term, planning things out also makes things better. So if you haven't planned out your Pantheon before and you've just used the published material, maybe think about closing down that published material to a set that you're really comfortable with and you know the motivations for all of those deities and you know how they interact together and you can create a really beautiful story of a life-changing and planes-changing adventure with just those smaller set of deities in action. I think it will be a great experience for you and your players. We really hope that uh, you have a good experience with these, but we're sure you have your own methods of doing everything as well. So if you have anything that you really didn't like about what we said, or if you have any strategies that have worked great for your campaign, feel free to send us an email or leave us a comment on our Instagram. We'd love to hear from you about how you run deities in your Dungeons & Dragons games. Until next time, I'm Raymond O'Connor. I'm Ariel Rasko. And thanks for listening to Running Off the Rails. If you enjoyed Running Off the Rails, please like, follow, and review our show on your platform of choice. Please follow our Instagram, Running Off the Rails, for notifications whenever we release a blog post, a new episode, or new content on the DMs Guild. If you prefer a specific type of content, please send us a message on Instagram. The jam you are listening to is Hoist by Andy G. Cohen, and you can find Hoist and more of Cohen's music on the Free Music Archive. You can find links to all of our content at runningofftherails.com or on our Facebook page, Running Off the Rails.